0: Wedge Issues is brought to you by Wispolitics.com, a place where political insiders go for news, opinion, and campaign information. Once again, that's Wispolitics.com.
1: When Tony Evers, a Democrat, was elected governor of the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty released a statement promising that it stood ready to fight. Leading the fight for the Milwaukee-based conservative law firm and think tank is President and CEO Rick Essenberg. In a statement released after the election, Essenberg warned of an executive branch that will be, quote, hostile to the principles of individual freedom, limited government, free markets, and civil society, end quote, to which Will has dedicated itself. I'm Jesse O'Poyan. I have a cold, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. Rick Essenberg joined me a few weeks before the election to talk about his organization, how it's changed over the years, and how he came to be involved in the work that he does. Stay tuned for that conversation in just a minute.
0: Well, I'm Rick Esenberg, and I'm the general counsel and president of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, and I founded it in 2011. When people used to ask me what will is, I used to tell them, well, think of the ACLU, but shift the politics just a little bit, not reverse it, mm-hmm. um, because there are areas, at least until recently, where we may have had much in common with the ACLU. But Our idea initially was that we were going to be a strategic litigation center um, that was focused on advancing the public interest in individual rights, um, limited government, the rule of law, and uh, fostering a robust civil society, by which I mean private associations and institutions. Over the years, we've come to add a think tank component, um, largely focused on K twelve education, but not exclusively, in which we try to do policy research, which is strategic, um, but yet serious. You know, our, our approach to these things is that we don't deny that we have a perspective about the way in which the world works, uh, but uh, we try very hard, both in our litigation and in our policy work, to adhere to sort of standards of excellence and candor, and so we want people like you to, to come to think that, well, you know, I may not agree with uh, what they put out, but I at least have to take it seriously, right, because, because, you know, they're striving to do credible work.
1: When you got started, I think I, I read an interview from 2013 that you talked about this was something that you thought that groups on the left had done well for some time, and you felt like um, in the legal world there wasn't really the same perspective coming from a conservative perspective. Has that changed some in the years that you guys have been active? I mean, are, are you, are you, did you sort of blaze that trail?
0: Well, I, mean, I would say, you know, yes and no. I mean, I so in, in, in my profession, and I'm trained as a lawyer and have been one now for longer than I think it could be possible, um, <laughs> all the energy behind public interest law um, was generally on the left, right? And there was, there's was there been an, a, a long-standing sort of left progressive legal project, which has emphasized maximizing judicial discretion and using the courts to enact substantive policy changes and generally expand the reach of the federal government. Uh, starting in the early 1980s with the founding of the Federalist Society, there's been a pushback against that, um, where there's now sort of this conservative libertarian legal movement, which emphasizes the uh, interpretive methods that uh, minimize judicial discretion. And we talk about textualism and originalism, and which tend to see the Constitution as something which is more about limiting government, attempting to sort of structure our federal system in a way which tends to Um, inhibit sort of concentrations of power. And so this is, uh, the Federal Society has been very, very effective at law schools and in the legal profession, and out of that has grown sort of conservative or libertarian public interest uh, organizations, right? Probably the most prominent one is the Institute for Justice, which I would call more of a libertarian group, uh, uh, tends to uh, take cases advancing economic liberty, school choice, that type of thing. Uh, Will is sort of a state-based exemplar of that movement, right? We were going to do strategic litigation, but we were pretty much going to do it here in Wisconsin. I think there was a time when in Wisconsin on the left, there was, and I think that there still are some very, very effective organizations. What they don't have ironically now on the left, is an organization which is just like ours.
1: Mm -hmm. You mentioned the evolution sort of from starting as solely uh, litigation-based and and moving into this sort of think tank realm. Can you just talk about what that shift has been like, what enabled you to go down that road, and what some of the focuses have have been in that think tank world? Sure.
0: So there was a perception, I think, on the part of some people we work with that there was a need to do sort of strategic and serious research in the K-12 area and around uh, issues of school choice, Um, in the area of K-12 education, there are a lot of things that people sort of accept to be true that aren't necessarily true. They have to do with how well suburban and rural schools perform. We think they perform well. Uh, They do not perform well by international standards. So so there's this idea that, you know, if we have a problem in public education, it's simply in the city of Milwaukee. That's not true. Uh, There is um, this assumption that school choice does not improve outcomes for kids. I think that the answer to that is far more complicated. In fact, good choice schools, and there are many of them, uh, significantly improve outcomes for kids, including poor kids. And so uh, there's an assumption that if you spend more money, you will get better results. Um, that turns out not to be the case. And so what we decided to do is is we wanted to bring in people to work with us and for us who had um, impeccable research credentials, who could do serious work, not simply write op-eds or throw opinions around, but, but do stuff that uh, – uh, that sort of advances public knowledge. And again, I don't expect everybody to agree with it. No study is perfect. But we wanted to um, have an important voice doing serious work in the K-12 area. And so this is one of the reasons why a lot of our reports, the ones that are appropriate for it, you know, we submit for publication in peer-reviewed academic journals. And we do that because uh, a way to Sort of demonstrate to the public, but also to remind ourselves that that's the standard of excellence that we uh, that we aspire to and and as the years have gone on, we've attempted to move we've done some work in the economic liberty area and occupational licensing and uh, all of that is uh, headed up by uh, uh, Dr. will Flanders, who is our our research director. you know people often say to me, well you know what a you're, you're a lawyer you know how, how can you do a report on on, on school choice. And the answer is, I don't do it. Uh, Dr. Flanders is in charge of that.
1: Have you seen the the actual mission of, of what you started change over over those years? Or is it still sort of the core of, of well, what you hoped at the time? So I remember
0: at the time that we started, I had a bunch of um, lawsuits that I wanted to bring. And they're still in the hopper. Right? <laughs> because yeah. when when we started, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, is important, I think, for any organization like this is that you sort of react to public events. And so when we started is right when Act 10 happened, right, when the, you know, the Capitol, you know, exploded, everything looked like 1969 again, and there were litigation broke out all over. And uh, there were various ways in which we were involved in that. Uh, then the John Doe investigation happened, and uh, you know, given our emphasis on free speech, uh, you know, that was something that we got involved in. We've increasingly spent a lot of time on campus free speech matters. Um, you know, uh, one of our, our more um, prominent cases was our representation of Dr. John McAdams. Well, that's not something that we necessarily planned to do, that's something that happened. And so that type of thing is always going on. But I think that, you know, for us, and, you know, we're, we're focused on freedom of thought and expression, freedom of opportunity and entrepreneurship, and freedom of association and civil society. And we call that conservatism in the United States. I think in the rest of the world they call it classical liberalism. But that's, uh, that's what we're focused on, whether it be, as we call it, will law or will policy.
1: There's a lot of wonky stuff, but whenever I get a press release that you guys are, you know, signing a brief or getting involved in a new case, I always know it's going to be something interesting. Whether it's sales of butter or wolf population management or the the Valentine case that, that you guys have taken up now, I mean, the we
0: would try to put out a press release today, need it or not. <laughs>
1: um, I guess can you can you talk a little bit more about what goes into decisions on which cases interest you and which ones you think are, are good fits for the organization?
0: I mean, we generally want some larger impact. So, you know, you mentioned the Valentine case that we just started, and and that's a case that we filed in the Eastern District of Wisconsin up in Green Bay. Our client, a young woman named Polly Olson, was handing out some—she has this practice. She's done this every year since she can remember, in which she cuts out these sort of homemade Valentines, and she writes— you know, little messages on them like, God loves you and you are cared for. They generally have a religious theme. And she was trying to pass them out at, at her campus, and she was stopped by campus security and told that she couldn't do that. Now, for us, what's important in that case is the fact that this raises the issue of speech zones on college campuses, right? Can a public university say that speech can only be conducted in a small area with prior approval of the administration. And we say no. We we don't believe the First Amendment permits that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the attention that the case has gotten stems around, though, the very human and personal part of it. This was a young lady that simply wanted to hand out valentines uh, to people who wanted to take them, and, you know, somebody was foolish enough to think that they should interfere and stop that. And so, you know, it's, it's that part of it that's gotten the public attention, but but we're also concerned about the impact that it has beyond that. And the McAdams case involved a single professor who was, you know, fired for a, a blog post um, but we think that the case raised important issues with respect to how you want to interpret uh, guarantees of academic freedom that are have sort of been worked on by the American Association of University Professors over the years and have come to be adopted by colleges across the country. So we look for a larger impact, and, and, I, and I'm sure if you had somebody here from the ACLU or from a legal organization on the left that say the same thing. We can't write everything that we think is an injustice. We have limited resources, and we have to pick uh, cases that will, whether we're Will or whether we're the ACLU or whether we're uh, some other organization, we have to pick cases that we think will, will, will move the law and have the most significant impact.
1: You've mentioned the ACLU of, a few times, and I think years ago it could have been probably assumed that there was some overlap on maybe things like speech issues between your organizations. Do you feel like there's less of that these days?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, one of the things that really surprised me, and and I, you know, one of the things, believe it or not, well, I, I read the New York Times religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that shocked me in the Sunday Times, yeah, I don't know, maybe it was about a month ago, was a, a front page article by Adam Liptock detailing how, you know, the left is rethinking this free speech thing, uh, and and you know we, we see a lot of evidence by that. there was an op sort of an infamous op ed um, in the Times in 2017 that sometimes in order to, you know, promote speech you have to suppress speech on campus. Uh, uh, the ACLU had a leaked memo regarding, uh, you know, the notion of maybe it doesn't want to protect speech that conflicts with um, other values that it has. So I think that 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 movement where um, I, I think the ACLU, although to some extent I think this is always true, but the ACLU to me seems to become an organization that, uh, you know, to the extent that, that freedom can be in tension with, you know, sort of efforts to, uh, promote uh, government intervention to advance, you know, some view of equality. Uh, the ACLU is more concerned about that now than it is about sort of traditional civil liberties. Uh, that might be unfair. Uh, somebody from the organization might disagree with me, but I think that they've sort of moved in that direction. And so the area of overlap is probably less than it might uh, otherwise be. But, I mean, I think it's still there. Um, uh, you know, we used to talk about, you uh, it seems that, you know, life is so tribal right now, uh, and there's no overlap, there's no common ground uh, for anyone. And and in, in the legal world, I often mention the, the issue of criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. uh, where th- there actually is sort of this budding, they come at it for different reasons and in different ways. Um, but there's kind of this growing agreement on the right and the left uh, on certain aspects of criminal justice reform. And which has been, ironically, promoted and, and funded by the Koch brothers more, more right. than anyone else. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been at some conferences where, you know, it was, you know, this sort of odd, you know, cats and dogs lying together type <laughs> of thing where I've seen, you know, all, all the guys from the Heritage Foundation that I know, and they're there with, you know, these um, sort of radical left woke uh <laughs> Uh, you know, folks that that um, are at least on some of these issues are yeah. agreeing with them.
1: Yeah, you you brought up the Koch brothers. I think the the Wisconsin stereotyped version of that is the Bradley Foundation. In terms of the the boogeyman, that um, seems to be the the first attack if someone doesn't like what you guys have put out in a, a report or something like that. What's that relationship really like? I mean, what do you what do you say when you? Are being refuted just on the basis of of where your funding may come from? Well, you
0: know, um, so. You know, Mike Greeby was the past president in the Bradley Foundation, and we used to joke about this because, you know, for a while, I thought that my name—I I could not—I re- must have changed my name because every time I saw it in the paper, it—it wasn't—you know—Bradley Hack became it was Bradley <laughs> Hack Essenberg, not Rick Essenberg, and I. And we used to joke because because the thing of it is is that the Bradley Foundation and, and really all of our other funders they don't know what we're going to do until they read about it in the paper. In, in Bradley in particular, I think, is, you know, institutional funders have exercised varying degrees of supervision over their grantees. Right? Some of them want periodic reports. Some of them want elaborate metrics. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, when you're engaged in philanthropy, you you need to exercise, you know, prudent control over your resources. And I think asking for accountability from people that you give money is perfectly appropriate. The Bradley Foundation is more libertarian in that regard. And I think in part keeping with their attempt to kind of be uh, true to the disposition and the orientation of their founders. It it, it perhaps is a little bit of an exaggeration to say that they just say go out and do good, but there's not much of one. And so we don't, you know, we don't seek approval uh, for anything that we do. Um, I suppose at some point if any funder doesn't like the things we we do, they'll probably decide not to give us money anymore, but... uh, Uh, but the idea that uh, that there's this sort of dark conspiracy in which you know people are directing other people to do things in order to um advance uh you know some hidden agenda is simply not true they have a certain view of the country and what will make the country better now you may not agree with that view but it is held sincerely Mm -hmm. and um it is followed diligently there's, there, there really is not more to see than, 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 than what's on the surface, I and mean, they're, they're, they're pretty open about what they do.
1: What are some of your favorite cases that you guys have taken on over the years? I know you've given a couple examples of more recent things, but what, what stands out in terms of just stuff that you're either proud of or that you had fun
0: with? Well, you know, the McAdams case was something that was very, very important to us. Um, I am a free speech absolutist, pretty close to a free speech absolutist. And although Marquette doesn't have to guarantee academic freedom to its faculty as a private university, it did. I think it was correct to do so. Where it made a mistake is it didn't abide by that. And I think validating that and getting this fellow his job back um, was 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 really really important to us. Um, another case that I I kind of like that it never got a lot of attention um, was uh, it was sort of early on. Um, we had a client called um, the Jerusalem Empowered African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was a uh, a small predominantly African American church on Milwaukee's northwest side. Who the city of Milwaukee was sort of denying their charitable exemption for property taxes uh, for land that they, in fact, did use um, for purposes of you know, fulfilling their mission as a church. And the, the reason that I think the case was important to us is, is because for the church, it was kind of existential. They didn't have the money to pay the property tax. If the property tax is going to impose, be imposed on them, their church community was gone. And um, we were able—we to, took the city to court, and we were able to prevail in that case. And so, you know, their church community continued, and uh, and it was, you know, didn't get a lot of attention, but, um, but it was gratifying to be able to do that.
1: Just, I think, yesterday, you guys put something else out in terms of recommendations for a wolf— uh, management, I guess environmental issues, I mean, you, you're involved in some, but this has seemed a little unexpected for me to see you guys weighing in on, on the wolf debate. So where it, does that fall into the it, philosophy?
0: It, right. It's not so much the environmental stuff, but, it, but, it, but it's the whole question of federalism. Right. So, you know, we started a Center for Competitive Federalism um, a couple of years ago, and uh, there's a couple of things that I always say about that. Um, we are in favor of competitive federalism. That is not the same as states' rights. In fact, I've told my people that I ban the use of the word states' rights in referring to our federalism project, and it's not just because the word came to have you know really awful connotations because of its abuse uh, during the Jim Crow era, but because it's not accurate. Our system of competitive federalism in the United States. Recognizes the sovereignty of the states. It recognizes that the federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers. But where the federal government has authority, it, it, it does override the prerogatives of the states. And so the privileges and immunities and the freedoms of citizens of the United States do uh, bind. Uh, state government but in areas where you know congress ought not to be a- acting the uh our, our system of competitive federalism i think requires that congress step back now the the wolf management issue i think has been significant because you know we, we don't think about it in Milwaukee and we don't think about it in Madison you know we don't we don't have wolves uh, although um I, uh we have this lion in Milwaukee. I don't know if you've heard of
1: <laughs> him. I've heard, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, is, that, I, is
1: that guy still on the loose?
0: Well, you know, he was spotted a quarter mile from my house. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, um, I, I, I think he still is. <laughs> and, and at first I dismissed it, but then they got him on video. <laughs> and he's like really a mountain it's lion. Just bizarre. <laughs> but – but 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 wolves are a big problem in yeah. northern Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and and they're costing taxpayers money because under state law, if your property is destroyed by a wolf, you get to apply for compensation. It's not really very adequate or very good. Uh, you know, people are losing their livestock, people are losing their dogs. Yet, but yet Wisconsin is forbidden from having its own policy choice here because of. Uh, very recalcitrant ways of interpreting the Endangered Species Act and so basically sort of treating it as a one-way ratchet in which you get on you get a species on the list but you can't take them off um, even if you know they've now begun to prosper to the extent that they're becoming a threat to uh, to, to livestock and to you know domestic animals and so uh, that's that's really what motivated the uh, what we've done what we were doing there. Wedge Issues is sponsored by Wispolitics.com. You can become a Wispolitics.com member. Find out more at Wispolitics.com slash membership.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your own background um, before Will? What got you interested in law? What has shaped your philosophy in terms of being a conservative and, and believing in federalism and libertarianism? Just what, what, kind of, what makes you the person doing the job that you're doing now?
0: Well, you know, I was a nerdy little kid and, um, you know, became interested in becoming a lawyer. I'm from a blue-collar background. Um, My dad's a retired firefighter. I grew up in uh, Greenfield's blue-collar suburb and uh, didn't know anybody who had gone to college, but I sort of thought that being a lawyer was a neat thing to do. I remember, uh, you know, there were a lot of lawyer shows on TV back then. Um, I'm a little, actually a little too young to really remember Perry Mason, but I remember a show called judge for the defense, and I thought, wow, that's a great thing to do. And so, I, you know, I became uh, uh, became a lawyer, came back to uh, Milwaukee, and I wanted to, to to come back to Wisconsin and uh, spend a number of years as a litigation associate and partner at a at Foley and Lardner, it's big firm mm-hmm. in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, I. Uh, Got hired away to become general counsel for one of my clients, a wonderful company called Wright Height Holding Corporation. It makes um, sort of typical Milwaukee big heavy metal iron stuff that um, <laughs> is sold and actually fabric too that's sold at uh, essentially in distribution centers. And then you know I had what um, I, I call my my midlife crisis. Which for me seemed to consist of a recognition that I was being overpaid and underworked, <laughs> and so when eh, that's not quite right, I mean, I, I don't—I <laughs> you know, I worked hard, but but right. but but you know, I wanted to to do some other things, and uh, initially, what I did was um, become a law professor. I was fortunate enough to be able to do that for a few years um, at Marquette University Law School, and then we decided to. To start, will uh, about seven years ago, and uh, uh, it, it's been it's been really gratifying. Uh, I always say that I've reached the point in life where uh, a good part of my job is to take credit for the work that other people do, mm-hmm. and my colleagues exhaust me. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, uh, you know, core of very talented, <laughs> much younger people for the most part, <laughs> and uh, and it's um, I mean, it's been been sort of great to see the organization grow and to know that it's going to be there for for a long time, I think.
1: I was recently listening to the New York Times Daily podcast and they did a whole episode on how the uh, Federalist Society has shaped the judicial landscape over the last 30 years or so. Was that, when you were in law school, was was that a presence on campus? No, no. The Federalist
0: Society was not formed until the year after I graduated uh, from law school. So, you know, I was... uh, I was at Harvard Law School from 1978 to 1981. It was um, fairly undiverse uh, with respect to you know the different views that people would take of the law. The Federalist Society, I think, was an attempt to push back against that. And, and you know the thing about the Federalist Society is is you know there there's this tendency of people to think that this is somehow the opus day of the, <laughs> the legal profession. And now, uh, putting aside the fact that opus day isn't even the opus day that that, <laughs> that is portrayed in, in you know sort of common literature, yet Dan Brown has everything wrong. Um, the Federalist Society is is really. Uh, more or less a debating society. Uh, it has its um, uh, National Lawyers Convention in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, every November. It is uh, widely known as the Nerd Prom. Uh, it has a big black tie dinner. And typically, a typical Federalist Society event will consist of a panel which consists of to be sure, uh, probably a majority of people who take a more conservative view of whatever legal issue is being discussed, but very often they will, there will be somebody on the left, and the Federalist Society actually promotes that. They will ask you when you're going to do an event under Federalist Society auspices, you know, is this going to be a debate? You know, could you get somebody to give the other side? And. Uh, I, I think that's a great thing. I, I was just speaking the other day with uh, someone, a lawyer here in Madison, who is uh, with the American Constitution Society, which is sort of the counterpart mm. of the Federalist Society on the left. And, you know, they're doing the same thing, right? They wanted to have a joint event uh, where I, I would be there and I would present the conservative point of view. And they're going to have somebody on the other side who's going to tell me why I'm wrong. And <laughs> um, and that's a, that's a good thing to do. And uh, the that really has been the way that the Federalist society has been successful it it's put forward ideas which I think when I went to law school were sort of regarded as dead uh, and that nobody talked about any uh, anymore um, uh, Originalism was an idea that everybody scoffed at you know 35 years ago uh, Now we have Justice Elena Kaga saying and in, in some sense we're all originalists uh, you know natural law theory was, Dead, 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 thirty five years ago, and it's come back now. And so uh, you know, I, the Federalist Society, I think, has been about sort of getting certain ideas, a hearing that they weren't given in the past, and they've been very, very effective. And in the course of that, they've identified and cultivated a number of very talented, very well credentialed people. Um, who you know are now sort of being advanced to in, into the judiciary, and you know one of the things that you know we can, I, I suppose we're not going to talk about Donald Trump. Um, um, I, I hope not, anyway. Uh, I, I did have but, a question. But, or but, Well, two. that's fine. But um, it's in
1: it's in this realm. It's in this r- question, right? Of, but, but, yeah. but one of the yeah. things
0: that 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 you know the the Trump administration has done is that um, it's essentially outsourced judicial selection to the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, and with a few exceptions, the people that have been advanced to the federal bench, to be sure, um, they're far more conservative than the people that would have been appointed and were appointed during the Obama administration. But they are very well credentialed, very, very sharp lawyers, uh, very good at what they do. And that's something that, you know, that just doesn't happen, right? You need a uh, you know, you need an intellectual movement to do that. You need a place where you know people can interact with other people, and uh, and the Federalist Society has provided that.
1: The Trump question is <laughs> okay. You um, can ask whatever you want. Sure. It's all right. Well, I, you know I know for for many conservatives and and Republicans, Donald Trump gave a lot of heartburn during the. Campaign and probably still continues to do so, but one really redeeming factor for a lot of people is the importance of judicial vacancies and and the responsibility of filling them. Um, you sort of indicated this, but do you feel like he has been doing what you hoped he would do in that regard? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, he's basically. I mean, I I, I think it's why he won. Um, I think if he doesn't come out with the list of Supreme Court nominees. He would not have been able to hold enough traditional Republicans and movement conservatives to to to, to win in the way that he did, and uh, so I, I think he's been smart enough to recognize that that's a commitment that he needs to to stick to. And I, there's a certain irony in it in that it it the issues that are raised by these judicial appointments, right, and what these judges will do and what they think are important are not really issues that Donald Trump ran on. They're they're not issues that he's shown a a great deal of interest in and were not issues that motivated his primary base. I think they were motivated by some different things. And so, uh, but the the judicial nominations have been... uh, you know, have been have been very, very good. Mike Brennan, who was nominated to Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, I've known for a long time. Um, I can't think of anybody who's more qualified to be a judge than Mike Brennan. Uh, you know, Neil Gorsuch, fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, we're now in the midst of, as we record this, we're sort of in the midst of the Kavanaugh uh, controversy. But, you know, as a judge, a uh, uh, very accomplished um, individual.
1: You, like many other conservatives and Republicans, are not Jumping at the chance to talk about Donald Trump, uh, usually. But what do you what do you think his election two years in? What's what's the impact on both conservative and Republican politics, but sort of the public discourse at this point?
0: Well, look, I mean, I I I was, uh, you know, first of all, I should say that now you're asking for my personal opinion because the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty does not take position on candidates. That's right. And uh, you know, I was, you know, critical uh, of Trump for a a, a lot of reasons. I didn't and I don't like his tone I, I I don't like the way that he's careless about the things he says. and I have been concerned that the the Trump phenomenon uh, represents a sort of an underlying split in the conservative movement because I think in many ways not not in the general maybe not in the general election and certainly not in the way. That he's governed for the most part. That that if we think of American conservatism, and you know, one of the things that I always say is conservatism is different in every country because every country has different things to be conserved. Hmm. In the United States, I, I think I mentioned earlier that what we call conservatism is generally would be called classical liberalism, and or just liberalism, in the rest of the world because that is the way in which one of the ways in which America is. Exceptional, exceptional, exceptional—not necessarily meaning superior, but meaning different. So, if you if you see American conservatism as sort of, you know, the 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 free marketeers, the social conservatives, and the foreign policy hawks, there was a sense in which the Trump campaign ran against all three of them, Mm -hmm. and uh, and and really sort of introduced a fourth stool. Now. I think if you look at the Trump administration as the way it's played itself out, he's more or less governed as a traditional conservative because he's sort of, he's brought into the government um, a lot of people that would have been there no no matter what Republican got elected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People like Betsy DeVos, some of his foreign policy team. The big exceptions are trade and to a lesser extent immigration. But I think that because he's, he's, Putting aside the tweets, which are not traditional and not, you know, particularly conservative in my view, he's governed in a traditional conservative way. Um, he's a, he's been able to sort of hold together uh, the traditional Republican coalition. What I worry about sometimes is what's going to happen, you know, when when Trump is gone, you know, because I think these divisions that surfaced in the twenty sixteen election, both within the Republican and the Democratic Party, with the rise of Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Socialists, you know, how is this all going to look in twenty twenty when we're we're dealing with, you know, sort of the overpowering personalities that masked it in twenty sixteen are gone. The Clintons are gone. At some point Donald Trump is going to be gone just because eventually we're all gone. Uh, and and what's it going to look like then?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, what do you see, whether it's cases you might want to take on or just bigger conversation pieces, and as the biggest issues that you and or Will will be monitoring in the next year, or two years?
0: I think campus free speech is going to be an issue for us. I think that um, uh, Federalism and administrative reform is going to be a big issue for us. You know, everybody joked about Nancy Pelosi during the uh, the passage of Obamacare, you know, when she got up and said, we have to pass the bill to know what's in the bill. Now, I will concede that she misspoke, and, you know, it perhaps it's a little bit unfair to, to take what she said literally, um, but... But to some extent, it's true, right, in Congress now. They passed these 1,200-page bills, and the notion that, you know, all of the members understand what's in there is probably not true. But the thing of it is is that even after you passed uh, the Affordable Care Act, if you had read the 1,200 pages, you still wouldn't know it was going to be in there because the law was going to be defined, and this is not limited to the Affordable Care Act, but the law was going to be defined by the actions of all sorts of administrative agencies, both in promulgating rules and directives and guidelines. And that wouldn't happen until after the law is passed. So it's it's not that we would find out what's in there. It's that somebody would decide what to put in there. I I think that that's um, an an unfortunate abdication of Congress's responsibility. It happens on the federal level. It happens in the state level. And it's going to be something that we're going to be litigating about. Increasingly, I think there's been a recognition, particularly given our divisive politics, that federalism may be a route to civil peace. That is, we don't have to have uniform rules about everything throughout the country. California can be California. Florida can be Florida. Texas can be Texas. And Wisconsin can be what it is. And although, as I said before, there are areas where the federal government has power and it is supreme under our constitution, there's a lot of areas where, you know, the federal government has really taken on authority that it never was intended to have. And maybe we need to step back a little bit and allow some type of policy diversity and then teach ourselves tolerance again. So, you know, we don't think we have to stamp out anybody that dissents or does something differently than than we want to do. Uh, So... Uh, I think the free speech area, the federalism, the administrative law, we, I think will always be focused on K-12 reform. I, I don't know what the political landscape in Wisconsin is, is going to look like, but the intractable fact remains that our schools are not as good as we think they are. Uh, you know, former Speaker Scott Jensen lives in in Brookfield, always likes to tell, you know, his neighbors in Elmbrook that, you know, if you—we think that the Elmbrook School District is one of the best in Wisconsin, but if we put it in Canada, it would be average. And so right now, I think we have a debate which is far too dominated by the interests of the adults who work for the system and is sort of, as I said earlier— is sort of predicated on things that people assume to be true that aren't, But you know, both on our policy side and to a lesser extent on our litigation side, um, you know, we'll be working on those issues.
1: Okay, I'm going to switch gears. What do you do when you're not thinking about the law or politics?
0: Um, well, I said before that I was kind of a nerdy guy, uh-huh. right? I was a nerdy <laughs> little kid, and now I'm like, I'm a nerdy older guy. Um, but you know, I, I'm a crazy dog person. Um, I have Golden Retrievers, and uh, you know we spend uh, a lot of time on that. I've got three grandsons, and uh, uh, we spend a lot of time. Uh, well, I don't know if we spend a lot of time, but 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 maybe we spend more time worrying about them than we spend anything else. And, <laughs> and not really; they're great kids. So, so 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 that's that's really important. And I think increasingly as I get older, I'm you know I'm I'm far more interested in. In in exploring sort of areas of interest where we don't have to be at loggerheads with each other all the time. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think, particularly when you when you do this type of work, occasionally you just need a break, um, and and you need to tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to fight with anybody tonight. I'm I'm. Uh, You know, I'm going to watch a movie or read Shakespeare, or I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to, you know. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's important to do that type of thing from time to time.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to try to put you on the spot and ask you something you think people might be surprised to learn about you. Or are you an open book?
0: Surprised to learn about me. Um, It does kind of put me on the spot. I was going to say that I I spent a lot of time covered in dog hair, but I don't think that's... uh, (laughs) Uh, that's necessarily uh, what you want to hear. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I – maybe I am uh, a little bit of an open book. But, you know, that may depend upon how I uh, think other people perceive me. Sure. I guess may, maybe the thing that would surprise people is – and maybe more people in sort of the Madison crowd is that when uh, might find that um, – I I probably like a lot of the same stuff that they like, <laughs> like you know um, I'm a huge fan of the blues, and uh, I'm not a person that allows my politics to define what entertainment um, I enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, for for example, and, and maybe this is not, uh, I happen to believe that all of li- all of life's big questions are answered by the Big Lebowski.
1: Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> can always go back to that movie and find something relevant right (laughs) that's good Yeah, (laughs) we did a a cap times talk with uh keith jilks and tanya bjork and someone came up to keith jilks afterward and asked him if he liked the beatles and his mind was just blown when he found out that republicans liked the beatles
0: so okay so then so now so now you're asking one of the compelling questions of my generation Mm. are you a beatles person or you are a stones person.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: I am a stones person.
1: Interesting. This
0: does not mean I don't like the Beatles. Okay. But I definitely was always a stones person.
1: So two questions. Because I am not of your generation, I believe that one can like both equally, but I think you're going to tell me I'm wrong about that. So why why does it have to be a choice? (laughs) <laughs> and, and why is it The Stones?
0: Well, because The Stones are harder-edged. Sure. Uh, and I liked that. You know, I mean, It's funny because both of them have, have these sort of various iterations, right? The Beatles go from sort of being this sort of pop phenomenon to being sort of this more trippy. I, I think The Beatles were more at heart kind of an English show band, um, not so much a rock and roll band. I think that um uh, when I was um there's another thing that people wouldn't wouldn't know about me um I used to be a democrat right I, mean, I was kind of a I was a kind of a liberal kid um I, in fact even as an adult I was chairman of the North Shore Democrats in Milwaukee for a while really um yeah and so I I had this sort of rebellious streak and sort of anti-authoritarian streak And I thought that the Stones expressed that more than the Beatles, who seemed to be sort of softer and less threatening. And um, and now some people would say, well, now you've changed because you've become this conservative. But see, I don't see it that way because – I think one of the reasons that I'm a conservative is that I'm very distrustful of the notion that some centralized authority can know how to run other people's lives, and so I, I I think the progressive project in America has been about the the idea that well you know if we just give government a bunch of power and we let experts take over that somehow they're going to make the world a better place. Well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that anybody can has a, have enough information. And so, um, um, I, you know, I believe, you know, markets and emergent order work a lot better than, you know, centralized top-down planning. Now, I do think, you know, as you get older, you tend to have more appreciation for traditional values and things that you thought were kind of stupid uh, when you were young. But I think that, I think I still have that anti-authoritarian streak. And of course, my wife would tell you that what that that really means is I don't like anybody telling me what to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that there's got to be a little bit of that in everybody, right? Just varying degrees. certainly. Um well, I think we've we've run the gamut on this. This was fun. Thanks for doing it. Thanks
0: I like my music soft and sweet just like the
1: girls Thank you for listening to wedge issues. Our theme music is Oh Wisconsin by Loxley. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and had some time to spend with friends, family, and loved ones. Wedge Issues is taking a break next week and probably for the next few weeks because the holidays are coming and some of us need a vacation. But don't you fret, we will be back in a few weeks. And the best way to find out when we return is to make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or anywhere else you find your podcasts. If you have any feedback or suggestions for me in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie, J-E-S-S-I-E-O-P-I-E, or you can email me at jopoien at madison.com. I want to hear from you to find out what you hope to hear from us in the coming weeks and months as we keep this podcast up. We'll be back again in a few weeks. We'll see you then.
0: Wedge Issues has been brought to you by wispolitics.com. There are plenty of benefits to becoming a member. You can go to wispolitics.com slash membership to find out more.